Today we'll go through Haggai 2, 10 through 23. We'll finish it up. Or if you're always willing, we'll finish it up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to do it anyway. And I don't have any plans not to. But uh, it's been a fun book for me. I hope it's been fun for everybody in here. And uh, I know it's different. It's not James or Peter or Matthew or whatever. But it's, but it's been fun. So anyway, I'm going to read Haggai 2. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 23, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray and get started. All right. Chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Haggai the prophet. This is what Yahweh of hosts says. Ask the priest for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and with his fold touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it does become defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, Yahweh's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there is defiled. Now, reflect back from this day. Before one stone was placed on another in Yahweh's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. And when one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you, all the works of your hands, with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me, Yahweh's declaration. Consider carefully from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of Yahweh's temple was laid. Consider it carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of Yahweh come to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, the declaration of Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, Yahweh's declaration, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of Yahweh of hosts. All right. Now that we've read it, I'm going to pray over the message. i just like to do it, and then, uh, then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for this day, and I thank you for allowing me to, to be here and um, study your word and to, to understand it. Father, I thank you for the understanding that I have. And, Father, I thank you for the understanding that you'll give me in the future. And, Father, if you never give me anything else, I'm thankful for what I have. So, Father, I pray as I... As I relay the message that you've that you've given through Haggai to your people, as I relay them to these people, Father, I pray that you'd bless me, that you'd strengthen me, and Father, that that what's intended to be understood in this passage will be gleaned from my mouth. Father, I pray that the hearts of people will be open, and their eyes will be open, and they will be able to see. And Father, I pray that um, you'll be glorified through all this. Father, I love you. I love your Son. I ask all this in His holy name. Amen. All right, up until now, we've read the whole first chapter of Haggai, 
in the first nine verses of the second chapter. And we discovered a few things, and I, if, you, if you've been following along or taking notes, I've, I've made some points that I wanted everybody to catch in each lesson. So I'm going to go back over them again, and we're going to, from, from chapter 1, and uh, just kind of throw the points back out there. If you had not been writing them down, you brought pencil and paper or something today, and if you want to write them down, that's fine. And also I want to say this, if anybody in here wants the notes, I've saved the notes, my whole sermon. You can read it verbatim pretty much. And uh, if anybody in here wants it or is interested in it, let me know and I'll make you a copy of the whole sermon, you know, or you can listen to it. I guess Matthew's got it up on the website. But, um, all right, po- point number one is this. Haggai called the people to rebuild his temple. Point number two, he exposed their disobedience and explained the curses because of it. Point number three, he showed them how that they would honor Yahweh to rebuild the temple. Point number four, he assured them that Yahweh's grace would be with them while they are rebuilding it. Point five, he told them not to be discouraged because of the glory of the former temple, but this one would be even better. Point six, Yahweh is faithful in his covenant promises if we're obedient. And point number seven, when Yahweh is glorified, we reap the benefits. Up until this point, we've seen that Yahweh is transforming the Israelites by using the prophecy of Haggai and, and under the direction of Zerubbabel to make them an obedient people and a people who would honor him and glorify him. This week, uh, we're going to learn a little bit something, a little, a little bit of something different, but Yahweh is going to remind these people about how becoming complacent in their building of the temple will, will cause them to, to go back to their old ways in the same same place that he brought them out of. But as we read it this week, I want to give you a few more points, and you can write these down if, if you hadn't. Or you, I guess you hadn't. I hadn't given them to you yet, but you can write these down if you want to add them to your list. The first point is this. The priest understood the law and the responsibility to teach it. Point number two, Haggai shows them where they come from and how quickly they can get back there. Point three, holiness does not come by being in any certain place or claiming some religion but only by a sold-out heart for Yahweh and a willingness to please the Creator. And point number four, when Yahweh makes a promise, he's faithful to carry it out, faithful to complete it. All right, we'll start in verse 10, and then I'll kind of elaborate on each verse. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Haggai the prophet. This section in the chapter begins just like the last two sections that we covered it starts with a date the 24th day of the ninth month is the the ninth month is the hebrew month of kislev and it corresponds usually in our entire calendar the month of december it's been just a little over three months here since um since the last prophecy come to haggai and and these people have endured several things they've had a lot of stuff to do number one the last prophecy come on the 21st day of the seventh month which was at the time of tabernacles. So they're dealing with tabernacles, okay? They, they're busy with that. Yahweh's telling them to build the temple, so they've got to go up into the hills, bring down the cedar. They've got to reshape the stones, things like that, and start to build this temple. They've got harvest. The, har- the, the spring harvest should have already been harvested, but they had the fall harvest that they were dealing with right there at tabernacles. And not only that, they've got a plant right here for the winter harvest. So they've got they've got their hands full, and, uh, and they've been busy in the last in the last three months. So look at verse 11. This is what Yahweh of hosts says. 
asked the priest for a ruling. Haggai asked the priest to explain something in the law. How many people in here know that, that the priests were, were the teachers of the law? That's, that's what their job was. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 11, it says, Yahweh says this, The priests must teach the Israelites all the decrees Yahweh has given them through Moses. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, it says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of Yahweh Almighty. So the priests were knowledgeable in the law and able to teach and explain about to the Israelites what, what Haggai is supposed to ask them. In verse 12, he says this, If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and with his fold touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answers no. All right, Haggai asked this question regarding the law about consecrated meat. And it's it's kind of a strange question, but all the same, it, he asked it for a reason. Let's look at uh, let's look at Leviticus chapter six, verse twenty-six. I think we'll get the answer, but but notice that that Haggai asked the priest this, so he would he would have knew the answer. I'll give you a second to get there. All right, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 26, and we'll read through to 27. The priest who offers it as a sin offering is to eat it. It must be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Anything that touches its flesh will become holy, and if any of its blood splatters on a garment, then you must wash that garment in a holy place. It's talking about meat specifically. This is the this is the instruction regarding the sin offering. Verse 27 says that anything that touches the flesh or the meat becomes holy. That means the garment that's holding the meat in verse 12, in Haggai's question right here, the garment that's touching the meat that he's holding it in, it's holy. But that which touches the garment is not necessarily holy. The priests say no because the holiness doesn't pass through to a third object. Whatever the meat touches directly is holy, which is the garment, but whatever the garment then touches remains normal. We'll find the significance of this question in, in, the, in verse 13. This is important that you understand this. And as we go through it, you have to kind of put this together. This is, this is just Yahweh's way of making a point, I guess, or maybe a parable or something like that. All right, verse 13, it says this. Then Haggai asked, he just asked this question. Keep in mind, he just asked this question in, in verse 12. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches something that's clean, like bread, stew, wine, oil, or other foods, does it become holy? The priest answers no. And keep in mind this, too. I didn't mention this. Consecrated meat is meat that's been set aside for a sacrifice. That's all it is. It's meat that is clean and deemed set aside for a sacrifice. All right? In verse 13, then Haggai asks, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answers, it becomes defiled. So he asks the priest, if someone is defiled by a dead body touches something, that does, touches something, does that object also become defiled? And he answers yes. Once again, this is a strange question. Why, do, why are you asking why are you asking the priest this? It doesn't make any sense. Why, why does this uh, compare with the, 
with a temple? And it's a strange, strange question, but there's an answer to it. And uh, so let's look at Numbers chapter 19. Verses 11 through 13. I think I think you'll see the end result in just a second. Numbers chapter 19, verse 11. The person who touches any corpse will be unclean for seven days. He is to purify himself with the water on the third day and the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third and the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches the body of a person who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of Yahweh. That person will be cut off from Israel. He remains unclean because the water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him and his uncleanness is still on him. Let's look also at verse 22. Same chapter, verse 22. It says, anything the unclean person touches will become unclean and anyone who touches it will be unclean until evening. All right, it tells us that anything that's touched by, by an unclean person becomes unclean. In other words, it's much easier for uncleanness to transmit than it is for holiness to transmit. Holiness touches whatever, it, whatever the holy meat touched, that become holy. But whatever touched the holy garment wouldn't become holy. However, when something touches something that's unclean, that object's unclean. And it becomes unclean if you touch that object, you're unclean also until it until it stops. You see what I'm saying? It continues. It's almost like contagious. All right, verse 14. Then Haggai replied, so is, this pe- so is this people, and so is the nation before me, Yahweh's declaration, and so is every work of their hands, even what they offer, there is defiled. Haggai saying to the people that are defiled and unclean in Yahweh's sight, the whole nation and everything that they've that they touched was impure and unclean. Why? These two questions in verses 12 and 13 compare with the always reply in verse 14, and it and it kind of serves as a parable. I think the point of the parable is to show difference in the spread of defilement versus the containment the containment of holiness. The people's uncleanness of de, or, or defilement was contagious and spreading. Remember, remember, anything that touches something unclean becomes also unclean, and if they were discouraged. <coughs> Are complacent in their building, or not, are not unified and dedicated in their purpose. The defilement will rub off on the rest of the nation. Instead, we learned last week that he told them not to be discouraged, not to fear, but to build. For I am with you. The parable also shows that unlike defilement, holiness cannot be passed. I mentioned that just a second ago. They couldn't be passed by contacts. In other words, just because the holy temple was built and they were living among the city of the temple. Just because it was there and just because they were working on it, that that doesn't mean that they become holy just because they're doing holy things right there. Instead, their holiness would depend on their obedience, their covenant to Yahweh, their instructions, and it had to be commitment from their heart rather than just an association with the temple. Remember, he demands to be the first in all things. The temple didn't make the people holy. Instead, their desire to please Yahweh was what would make them holy. All right, verse 15. Now reflect back from this day before one stone was placed on another in Yahweh's temple. Let's go through 17. What state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When you came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, hail, but you didn't turn to me. 
Yahweh's declaration. Once again, he tells them, everything that you did was cursed because your heart wasn't right. Everything that you planted, I destroyed. Everything that you tried to do, I took half of it away. I only left you enough to get by. I only left you enough just to make it. Anybody know what blight is? I didn't know what blight was. It's an east wind. And um, these are these are some of the curses that come from, you know, that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I was, when I read it, I thought, well, I know what mildew is, and, and uh, I know what hail is, but I don't know what blight is. But, but blight is a scorching wind. And uh, that's how he destroyed some of the crops and things like that. I thought it was pretty neat. Let's look at uh, Amos chapter 4, verse 6 through 13. I want to give you give you another view of this. Haggai wasn't the first one to tell the nation of Israel about their disobedience and where it would get them. Moses told them about their disobedience and where it would get them, and every other prophet that come along told them about their disobedience. Now, Amos prophesied some probably 220 years, I think, something like that, 200 years prior to Haggai. And he's not prophesying about the same thing, but he's prophesying about the disobedience of Israel nonetheless, not necessarily about the temple, but he is a prophet. He's telling them, hey, if you don't straighten up, you're going to get in trouble. So Amos chapter 4, verse 6, and we're going to read through 13. I really like this uh, like this chapter. I, I never put a lot of time into it, but here it goes. Verse 6, I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not turn to me, Yahweh's declaration. I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on, an, on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain while a field with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, Yahweh's declaration. I struck you with blight and mildew. The locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me, Yahweh's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. Yahweh's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire, yet you did not return to me. Yahweh's declaration. Therefore, Israel, this is what I will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your mighty one. He is here, the one who forms the mountains, creates the winds, and reveals his thoughts to man. The one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. Yahweh, the mighty one of hosts, is his name. The repetition here is clear. He did all these things because of disobedience. Yahweh desires to be first in our lives. He doesn't want to be second. He's not asking for second place. He wants to be number one. That's up front, foremost. And um, if we didn't learn anything through this book, we're not done, but if we didn't learn anything throughout all of Haggai, we should learn this, that he should be number one in everything we do. When we wake up in the morning, the first thing we should do is consult him. When we when we, I don't know, however you pray, whatever you do, when you get up, the first thing you do, bow your head and thank him that he'll give you another day. Make him first and make him first in every aspect of your life. I'm guilty of not doing this. And I, I know there's probably more in here rather, you know, not just me. But we should, uh, we should really do this. It's important, you know. All right, let's read verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, consider carefully. There it is again. 
Consider carefully from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundations of the temple was laid, consider it carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive trees are not yet produced. But from this day on, I'll bless you. He tells them right here that their past headaches that they'd endured was because of the neglect of the building the temple. We're going to see this over and over and over again. I think this is Haggai's point. He says, but because they started construction on this temple, because they finally turned to him, they'll be blessed from this day forward. They finally demonstrated faithfulness to him, put him first in their lives, and began practicing obedience by building the temple. He always assures them that the future will be blessed abundantly. And from this day forward, he says, I'll bless you. They've been cursed with deprivation because of disobedience, but now by the, by the grace of Yahweh, because of their humble dedication to him, they'll be blessed with plentiful harvest going forward. How many people in here get up every week? I'm not asking for hands, but how many people in here get up every, every day and think or wonder, will I have my job next week? Or will Yahweh continue to bless me with the good uh, business that I've had? I think about it almost all the time. I think about I've got all my eggs in one basket. And if, some, if, if something folds on that one basket, if something happens, I'm doomed. I don't have any, I don't have any work or maybe I don't, uh, I don't have any resources anywhere else. I think about that all the time. Well, Yahweh give it to me. I believe that. I believe that Yahweh allowed me to have it. And I believe if I'm obedient, Yahweh allowed me to keep it. And um, I believe that Yahweh blesses people. And I'm not, I'm not trying to teach some prosperity message here. I'm not saying that you do this to get this. That's not the idea. What I'm saying is, if, you're, if your heart's right, and Yahweh's first and foremost in your life, he'll take care of you. You may not ever drive fancy cars or fly jets or have big, enormous houses, but what you will have is enough, and uh, he'll take care of you. And, and that's something to be thankful for. That's, that's good enough, you know. All right, verse 20. The word of Yahweh came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. All right, this is the second prophecy of the same day on the 24th day. Verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel. Let's just read 21 and 22. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile nations or Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. Once again, he's telling the Israelites he'll shake the heavens and the earth. He said that in, in verses 1 through 9, if you remember, in the, in the second chapter. He says, once again, I'll shake the heavens and the earth. And just, just like before, when the phrase shake the heavens and the earth was used, possibly a dual prophecy right here. It doesn't have to be, but there's a possibility that there is, and there's two ways to look at it. I'm going to give you both ways. The first fulfillment of the prophecy took place possibly about the fifth year of Darius's reign, and it refers to the uproot that, that uh, began in the rebellion of the house of Babylon. The second option is this. The fulfillment of the prophecy of the shaking of the heavens and the earth is yet future and extends to the future kingdoms of the world. All foreign kingdoms will be destroyed and overthrown, making way for the new kingdom of the Messiah. That's a, that's a possibility. So, so it might be twofold. All right, verse 23. This is the best part. On that day, the declaration of Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, Yahweh's declaration, and I'll make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is my declaration, Yahweh of hosts. 
So what is the promise made to Zerubbabel mean? I'll take you and make you my signet ring. The signet ring was a sign of delegated authority. It's a sign which kings use to validate laws. We see it in Genesis with Pharaoh when Pharaoh gives his signet ring to Joseph. And we also see it in Esther when the king gives it to Haman, you know, gives him all authority over the land. And then Haman, you know, after Haman Mordecai, the signet ring is moved on to Mordecai. In both instances, those who wore the signet ring were in command of all, second only to the king himself. When the signet ring is given, it symbolizes authority and unity within an empire. With this understanding, Zerubbabel's king is Yahweh, and he has given Zerubbabel the signet ring as a symbol of uniting his empire. In other words, Zerubbabel is the means that Yahweh will use to gather, unite, and establish Jerusalem again and restore the nation of Israel. Zerubbabel is the signet ring because he was chosen and was granted Yahweh's authority, guaranteeing the temple to be completed and the nation restored. Now this portion of the prophecy is also twofold because, of the, because it kind of points to the future as well. Zerubbabel was a descendant of David and a grandson of the deported, deported prior king. So Yahweh is not only reinstating his authority, but he is also reinstating the Davidic line and renewing his covenant with the nation by promising that he will destroy the kings of this world and establish a new kingdom to continue the line of David and bring about his final heir to the throne, our Lord and Savior, the Messiah. Let me give you a... I mentioned right there that Zerubbabel was a descendant of David and the grandson of the deported king. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David through which the line of the Messiah will come through. We talked about that last week. The deported king was Jehoiakim. All right? He went into Babylon. His son, Jeconiah, Jeconiah, I may be saying it right, Jeconiah, sometimes called Coniah, he stayed behind and was killed. Okay? But Zerubbabel... However, it comes back from Shealtiel was Coniah's son. He goes on to Babylon. He has Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel comes back. Okay, that's how that's how we get to Zerubbabel. But anyway, through a long line of heir of heirs, Zerubbabel comes up as a priest. And as that priest, he's a he's or not a priest, but kind of like a governor. He's he set forth right here to run Jerusalem. And through Zerubbabel. Yahweh made him a signet ring. All right, he made him he made him a, a way to reunite his kingdom and things like that. He's, I guess to get to the final thing of all of it, he he he's part of the line of David and he brings about his final throne, or brings about the Messiah on David's throne. David's promised a seat forever. So Yeshua is given all authority, just like with the signet ring, and he will. He will one day return to bring about the Father's plan for the Son to rule and reign in the eternal kingdom. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, it's hard it's hard to get it through, but I, I hope I made some sense with it. If I didn't, turn to chapter uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll explain it this way. My point is that it's a dual prophecy and that Zerubbabel is a type of the Messiah. The same way that Zerubbabel is going to reunite Israel or Jerusalem, as a nation, put all that together the same way the Messiah will do it as coming kingdom. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start in verse 24. Yahweh is going to set his son over his kingdom after all of his, all of his enemies 
are placed under his feet. In verse 24, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, it says this, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to Yahweh the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The he and the his right there is reference to Yahweh and Yeshua. The last enemy is to, to be abolished is death, for he has put everything under his feet, he being Yahweh, putting everything under his feet, being Yeshua. But when it, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. Talking about Yahweh and Yeshua. Yahweh's not put under Yeshua's feet. Yeshua is Yahweh's signet ring. In other words, he gives him power and authority in all things, but not he himself. Yahweh's never subject to the one he gives authority to. It's the same way with Yahweh and Zerubbabel. He gives him authority, but he, he's never subject to him. Same way with Pharaoh and Joseph. He gives Joseph authority, but he was never placed under his feet. And when everything is subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, talking about Yahweh, who subjected everything to him, so that Yahweh may be all in all. All right. That's Haggai chapter 1 and 2, guys. That brings us to the end of our study in the book of Haggai. I was encouraged to read the book, and I hope that you were encouraged to read the book. And it, uh, it's a great promise to our coming Lord and Savior. It's a great, it's a great understanding that if we'll put Yahweh first, this is what Yahweh can do for us. Um, before we close in prayer, I want to remind you once again of some central themes presented over and over and again in this book. And I'm big on bullet notes and points, I guess. I didn't think I was, but I seem to make a big deal out of it this time. So uh, I'm going to discuss them anyway. There's there's a few points. Five I've just got wrote down here, and I want you to take them with you. And, hey, leave your life with them. I think they'll help. Point number one. Yahweh demands to be first in every aspect of our lives, if you haven't got that yet. Point number two, there are curses for disobedience, but the blessings for obedience. Point number three, Yahweh gives us a spirit to carry out his will. Remember Philippians 2.13, it's Yahweh who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Every good impulse we have is a direct work from Yahweh through his spirit. Point number four, when we glorify Yahweh, we reap the benefits of it. And point number five, Yahweh's faithful, faithful to keep his promises. So if we put Yahweh first in our lives, he'll not only give us the means to do great things by his spirit, but he'll be glorified when you do them, and we'll reap the benefits of his blessings. So Rubabel didn't know, he did not know that he would be part of the family that Yahweh's son would come through, or that he would be reading about, we'd be reading about him some 2,500 years later. But because of his obedience, we were, he was able to play a major part in Yahweh's future plan, arguably the greatest thing to happen to mankind, the coming forth of his son, Yeshua. So that being said, be encouraged. Put Yahweh first in everything you do, and be blessed by it. All right. I'll pray when we get out of here. You, y'all got something to say? And I don't mind, if anybody's got any questions, I don't mind answering questions. If I know the answer to him, if I don't, I, I'll find somebody who does. Arnold's got a question. Um, I think it's verse. Uh, well, you get it through eleven and twelve. He asked, he's asking the priest in in twelve and thirteen, but I think in verse eleven is where he says that he's going to ask him.
I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's going to be verse 11. Yeah, verse 11, Arnold. If you're talking about the the Torah part of it, are you talking about in the in the book of Haggai? Oh, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 11. Okay, it's ha- it's Haggai 2:11. If anybody else got any questions, I don't mind answering. All right. We'll pray. You got one? Go ahead. It um well, the way I understand it is a uh, it was just a it was a way that a king would give uh, somebody that he chose authority. And there's a couple different understandings on it. I'm not sure that I'm right or which one that's that's talked about here. But sometimes they would take a signet ring, they would take a ring, they would dip it in wax, and they would seal letters and stuff like that with them. And so when a king would send out an edict, like in Esther's case, he sent out an edict to all the the Judites living in, in, in the town that what was going to happen, how they had to worship, you know, different gods, things like that, and that they were going to be destroyed if they didn't, things like that. They would, they would take a, the scroll or paper or whatever that they had, they would roll it up with, with what was written on it, and the king would, would, or somebody else that was given authority, like um, in this case, Zerubbabel, he was given Yahweh's authority. He said he would be a signet ring. Now, I don't think Zerubbabel had a signet ring per se, but like Joseph would have had a signet ring, and he would take that ring and dip it in wax, hot wax. And then it would seal, when he would seal that paper that was sent out into, or that edict that was sent out into all the land, that stamp, that whatever was forged on the ring, would be in the wax seal. And that wax seal right there, when you when you seen that wax seal on it, you knew that that come from that come from the king himself. It didn't matter who the the person was that delivered it. The seal back the authority. And so when he says to when he when he says to uh, Joseph, you know when when Pharaoh says to Joseph that he gives him his signet ring, he's got the same authority as anybody else has, or got as much authority as the king, the only one that, that's not subject to him would be the king himself, or Pharaoh, or in this case, of course, Yahweh. Yeshua is definitely subject to, to Yahweh. All right. All right, we'll pray and get out of here. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you. I love you. I give you praise today. Father, thank you for letting me complete this book. And, and Yahweh, I just I just give you the glory. I hope that uh, that people are edified. And that um, people come to love the, the minor prophets as much as the major prophets. Father, we know that Haggai served a big part right here. And in um, and, and the rebuilding of your kingdom and the establishment of your nation. Father, we love him for his obedience. Father, we're thankful for Zerubbabel and, and um, Joshua and all the people, of the children of Israel that were obedient there. Father, I'm thankful for my forefathers, the ones that walked before us. I'm thankful for them. Father, we love you. It's, it's, it's through them and your divine inspiration that the words passed on to us, and that's the way we um, that's the way we learn it. We've got it all right here in front of us. If we're not too lazy to uh, to look at it, we can learn and glean from from these men this this knowledge that's in the scriptures. So, Father, I give you praise for that. I'm thankful for your only begotten Son, Yahweh. I love Him, and I'm thankful for His work. I'm thankful for your perfect plan. I give you praise for that. That was that was that was foreordained from the foundation of the world and that will come to pass. Father, we have hope in that. We have faith in that. Father, we trust that you will keep your promise. Father, help us to be obedient. Help us to walk in your ways and put you forth first in everything we do. Father, we love you. We ask all this in your holy son's name. Amen.